Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul starts this out. He said, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have written briefly already, by which when you, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of God, as it has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Let's just stop there for now. We looked at, in, in the, the very first words, for this reason, the, the reason he's going back, hearkening back to is all of chapter 2. This all started with God. We, we saw earlier in, in our study of chapter 1 and chapter 2 that the Trinity saw, saw salvation before ever they, they ever created the empty space or the first atom, the first bit of energy, before any of the earth or the universe was created, they knew what was going to happen, and they knew that it would require a sacrifice by Jesus to come, and they did it anyway. But when they came to us in chapter 2, if you remember those first three verses, we were dead in trespasses. We, were, uh, we walked according to the course of the world. We were by nature children of wrath, and yet God did it anyway. He not only came and, and paid the price for our sins, but he, when, when we surrendered our lives to him and confessed Jesus as Lord, he elevated us to sit with him in heavenly places, which is just an unbelievable reality. But then Paul comes here in verse 2, and he says, If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me, there are six dispensations which Paul mentions here. That word dispensation is the Greek word um, oikonomia, which means the administration of something. And Hebrews um, chapter 1, uh, Paul mentions it there. He said, um, Hebrews 1 verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. That's what the, the, this study or what Paul's referring to as dispensations. It's how God is, has dealt with humans. I'm not going to go back through it, but we went through uh, Hebrews 11. While God has dealt with mankind in different ways, mankind has always dealt with God in the same way, and that's through faith. We saw it in Hebrews 11. You can go back through it. Um, started with Abel, is the first one listed. He's under the age of innocence, which is from, well, excuse me, Adam and Eve were under innocence, 
which was from whenever Adam was created to the fall. And then the, the age of conscience, the dispensation of conscience, was um, Abel with um, and Enoch were both under conscience. Then from Noah, Noah kind of bridged two of them there. He started out his life under conscience, uh, preached righteousness for 120 years while he was building the ark. In that 120 years, not one person came and repented and said, yeah, we need God. So God shut him up in the, in the uh, ark. The flood came. The judgment came. God started over with the entire human race. And he started with human governments. Right after um, Noah, you came with um, uh, Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. And from Noah, if you go back and look at the lineage of Noah, you have every major, not really racial backgrounds, but every culture comes out of Noah. So he's, God dealt with us through human governments. Now, the, the amazing thing is God still deals with us through our conscience. Our conscience didn't prove a good guide from um, Abel to Noah, and it doesn't prove a good guide for us all the time now. He still deals with us through human governments. Even a bad government is better than no government. I, I really think, and I don't, not, don't want to really get into politics here, but if you look at, at who, and, and this is strictly my opinion, but if you look who the devil is using to try to bring problems into the world, into our nation, it's the anarchists. Uh, the people on the far left who are communists, anarchists, this anti-fascist group that is a fascist group, if there ever was one, Antifa, and all of them, they all agree in, on one point, and that is our government is irredeemably corrupt and has to be torn down and just not have any government at all, and out of the ashes they will rise up and rule the United States and this perfect and bring in this pure, perfect utopia, which we've seen that we saw that in the, um, you know, in Russia in 1917, and we saw it in China when Chairman Mao took over. We've seen it in in a lot of countries. It never works out. Their utopia basically means that everybody's going to be poor, and everybody but the ruling elite is going to be oppressed, and you have no freedoms. That's human government at its worst is oppressive, but is still better than anarchy. Because when you have anarchy and have no government, it's just rule the jungle. Whoever's got the biggest gun gets to rule. And you end up with tribalism, you end up with constant warfare, and nothing can prosper. And then at, at um, human governments ruled until the, the, the age of Abraham, and Abraham brought in the age of, or the dispensation of promise, which is the promise of the Messiah to come. And that is that we're still in that age. It, it's promise is still available to us. That age of promise lasted until Moses came out of Egypt. God gave them the law. Now, the law actually has never really ended. 
the age of the law. And that's where I want to start with tonight because that's part of what Paul is talking about here when he talks about, in verse 2, the dispensation of the grace of God. Verse 3, he says, I'm back in, in Ephesians 3, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already. That brief mention is in chapter 2 when he talked about Jew and Gentile being one new body. And he says, verse 4, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So it's not just a, the, the, a mystery, it's the mystery of Christ. And then he explains what the mystery is, because this is, it's, it's the Greek word mysterion, but it's not a mystery in the sense that it can't be understood. It's a mystery in the sense that, verse 5, in other ages, in other words, the ages prior to Jesus' resurrection, he said, in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So the, the mystery part of it is that until Jesus was resurrected, really until Paul came along, because and this is one thing you have to understand about these dispensations. Some of them have absolute, concrete, finite, this is where one dispensation ended, this is where the other one started. Some of them not so. Some of them, there, there are periods there where there's a little, you can see where you're kind of easing in from one or the other. I, and I've, I've got some very good teachers that I would disagree with, one of my former pastors is probably one of the best teachers I've ever listened to about biblical things. He will attest that the church age, which is the mystery, started at the, on the day of Pentecost. I don't accept that. I believe that the church age started with the first members of the body of Christ, which was right after the resurrection when Jesus came to his disciples and he told them, this is in John chapter 20, um, they believed in him as the resurrected Lord and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now they didn't receive the power of the Spirit that they were going to receive at Pentecost, but they were part of the body of Christ at that point. I believe the church age started there. Now, to be honest with you, that's not a heaven or hell issue. I wouldn't even argue with somebody over that. I, it's my opinion, but there was, and, and even with that, if you said it, it started at the day of Pentecost, nobody really had a revelation of it until widespread until Paul started writing his epistles. It's part of the reason that God had to give Peter the vision of the um, the 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 drape or the, the, the blanket that came down with all of the foods that some were clean, some were unclean. God was saying, take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Peter was saying, Lord, I, these things are unclean. I can't do that. And Jesus just said, look, if I've called them clean, don't you dare call them unclean. Well, immediately, Peter was called to go to Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile. And while even before Peter got to his altar call, God interrupted Peter's sermon, and the Holy Spirit fell, and all these people started falling out and speaking in tongues, and Peter's standing there thinking, wow, 
This is exactly what happened to us on the day of Pentecost, and now God's doing this to Gentiles. And Gentiles were hated by Jews. They were lower than scum by the Jews. So God was proving to Peter that I'm going to bring a new group in here, and it's not going to be Jew and Gentile anymore. It's going to be body of Christ, believers, and unbelievers. And that's the only division that the world knows now is that. But it was a mystery because prior to that, nobody saw it coming. We looked last week at uh, Isaiah 9-6, which is a scripture that you hear read a lot at Christmas time. And it's one of many, and I, I probably um, need to go through and find. Because the, the, the first and second coming are prophesied a lot in the... Um, Old Testament. But Isaiah 9-6 is one of these prophecies. But if you notice, it's going to, to go straight from the first advent, the first coming of Christ, right into the second coming of Christ with absolutely nothing in between. And we've got 2,000 years of church history here. Isaiah 9-6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's the first advent. Jesus was born as a man. And then the second part of verse 6, And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That is the second coming. Jesus will literally live and have a throne in the city of Jerusalem, and for a thousand years, the, the last dispensation, he will rule the entire earth, and all of the government will be in him. Well, between this age of law, which is what most of the Old Testament, or excuse me, most of the Gospels fall under the law, only after the resurrection do the Gospels get into the church age. And even in the, the book of Acts, um, I, th I believe it's after the, um, that all of Acts is in, in the church age, but the people still didn't understand it. That's why, because if you see this, and let me, let me go back here, and I don't have time to really fill this out, but hopefully this will come in the next few months. In Daniel chapter 9, this is um, a vision or an instruction that God gave to Daniel, and it was about the end of the age. The, the Jews had gone into captivity um, a couple of different times. They went into captivity, well, they actually went into Egypt, where they would eventually be enslaved under Joseph's administration. And then after Joseph was dead, sometime down the road, they became slaves because there was a group of pharaohs that arose that didn't know or care who Joseph was, and they didn't honor Joseph's memory, so they enslaved the Hebrew children. The really odd part about that is, these were God's chosen people, but if you, if you read, the reason they were held in Egypt for all of those years, and it was hundreds of years, about 400 years, was because God was dealing with the Canaanites. And he said their, their transgression is not full. God allowed his chosen people, Abraham's 
seed, physical seed, to stay in captivity and stay in slavery because he was trying to get the Canaanites to repent. And it was only when the Canaanites ran out of, of God's mercy and he, judgment had to fall on them that he brought his people out of captivity. So they had been in captivity first because of God's mercy on the Canaanites. And then once they came into the land under um, Joshua, I started to say Moses, but Moses actually didn't bring them in. God had told them in the law of Moses, every seven years, every seven days, you're supposed to have a Sabbath. You don't work on the Sabbath. You don't do, um, you can do a few things, but you cannot work on the Sabbath. But every seven years, the land needs a Sabbath. So you plant no crops every seventh year. And I will bless you so much in the sixth year that you're, you will have enough food to last you till the end of the eighth year when your harvest comes back in. They refused to do it. They just would not do it. And, and, and even more than that, every um, seven sevens, every seven, a period of seven Sabbath years, 49 years, you had the year of Jubilee. So you had two Sabbath years in a row for the land. Well, they had been in the land when, when they went into captivity under the Babylonians. They had been in the land for 490 years. They owed the land 70 years of Sabbaths. So God took them into captivity in Babylon. And he's explaining to Daniel... He actually said it in Jeremiah too, but he's given Jeremiah the, um, or excuse me, he's giving Daniel the real details. And this is in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. He said, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy God. The Jews read this. Daniel read this. And I'm not going to have time to go through it, but there is a... a well, let's go ahead and, and read on. Verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. The command to rebuild Jerusalem came actually from three different kings. First by Cyrus, and then again it was recorded by Darius, and then Artaxes also gave the order. Which one started the count? Probably the order by Cyrus, since it was the first one. Different scholars would argue different ones, but one of the three for sure, I, my opinion, I think probably Cyrus's order. That started this clock. And basically, when he, if you calculate this out, it's 490 years. Well, the Jews were very good at keeping genealogies, and they were very good at watching the calendar. 
That's why when Jesus was born, even the Magi knew they're coming close to the end of the age. The Magi weren't Jews. Um, For one thing, that's where we get our term magic. They were astrologers, but not astrologers in the modern sense that it was totally um, demonic. They actually had a revelation of, of the, the, the gospel and grace and the grace of God from the constellations. And they knew that it's got to be getting near the end of this 490 years. All of the Jews knew. And they're part of the problem that Jesus had and part of the reason that the, the, um, the Sanhedrin was so hostile was Jesus was not the first Messiah to rise up. From the Maccabees, who threw off um, the, 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 the ancestors of Alexander the Great and actually had independence uh, and brought back an independent or, um, Israel until they were conquered by Rome, there had been different charismatic leaders that would rise up and say I'm the Messiah and they would draw people to them there would be a small revolt and every time there was a small revolt especially during Roman rule there there was a huge punishment to pay so the Sanhedrin was looking for we want to stamp out anybody that claims to be the Messiah because we don't want this but the people knew Things are really close. And according to the calendar, of the 70 weeks of years, and, and if you add that up, there the 70 weeks in verse 24, that ends, it says, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That is the second coming of Christ they're talking about. That's when Jesus, or or Jesus will start the millennial reign. So they're looking at this and they're thinking, we're really close. And then for the disciples, that's part of, and this is my opinion, it's a little speculation. I think that's why it was easy for Satan to come in and deceive Judas. Because I don't think Judas in his mind, I think he, Judas was a thief and I don't, he didn't have a really uh, a true relationship with Jesus, but he was one of the disciples. But I think in Judas's mind, the reason he could get deceived is he, he had watched Jesus walk out from, from crowds when the people came to kill him. And I think in, Jesus, in Judas's mind, and also in Simon Peter's mind, because remember at the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Judas came to betray him. Judas or, or Peter came to fight a war. He wanted the Battle of Armageddon to start, and we're going to start it now. We're throwing off the Romans. They all thought Jesus will not allow himself to be killed. I know he said that, but that doesn't fit with our theology. And I think in, they dismissed his thoughts of being being going to the cross well I don't know that he actually mentioned he was going to a cross to that death but he was going to be killed and would rise again on the third day but I think in their minds 
they're thinking the millennial reign, the millennial reign, the millennial reign. It's close to time. And we may have just mixed up a few days, but it's close to time. And I think all of them thought that when they came to take him that night, that Jesus is just going to, you know, the, the sword's going to come out of his mouth and it's all going to be over. And yet Jesus surrendered to them and went to the cross and they're all thinking, wow, you see it in Acts 1 because he's getting ready to ascend to heaven and the people are looking at him and saying, but Lord, what about your kingdom? And he said, guys, go to Jerusalem, don't do anything, wait for the Holy Spirit. They had, they had no vision of the church age. They had no mindset that there's going to be thousands of years ago in here where Jew and Gentile will make up a, the body of Christ and God will actually come and live in human beings and recreate them and fill them and make them little Christs, which is what Christian means. And people will walk the earth with the potential to have the power of Christ in them and to do all of the things that Mark 16 talks about, lay hands on the sick, drink anything that's poisonous and it'll not harm you. It doesn't mean we're never subject to attack, but it does mean that God's working through us they didn't see that possibility. What they saw was, it's time to go into the millennial reign. It took Paul coming here in Ephesians chapter 3 to say, no, guys, there's a different age. In fact, if you, if you read between the lines in the book of Acts, the disciples in the Jerusalem church basically sat down all of those that had property sold all their property, brought the money in. We're going to just, everybody is going to share, share, and share alike. Whether you have money or not, those that have money will sell our stuff and we'll come and we're going to sit here and Jesus will be back in just a little while. And they're thinking weeks, months, maybe a couple of years to the point where Paul eventually, at the end of the book of Acts, is going through the Gentile lands, taking up money for this Jerusalem church, because they just sat down and waited. And that has been a problem throughout the entire church age. People will get a revelation and think, Jesus is coming back right here. This is the date. And they'll go sit on a mountaintop and wait, quit their jobs. I remember, um, you may remember this, um, 1987, I don't remember if it was 87 and 88 or 88 and 89, but a guy wrote the book, um, I think it was 88 and 89, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1988. And there were people, in fact, they, he actually encouraged it. Look, Jesus is coming back. Just go run up credit card debt. Enjoy yourself. You won't be here to pay off the debt. Well, Jesus didn't come back in 1988 and all these people woke up and some of them quit their jobs and they lost everything. They were head over heels in debt. And then the, the, the sad part was he went back and did his calculations and realized he was just a year off and he wrote a second book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Comes Back in, 89, in 1989 and actually sold not as many, but sold some of those books and people expected just in my lifetime, 
I have seen at least a dozen people rise up and set dates that lots of people, they were convinced this is when Jesus is coming back. And it got him into all kinds of trouble. Well, Jesus is coming back. We just don't know the date and the hour, but we do know the, do know that the general time frame. Now, the reason I went into all of that, when Jesus was resurrected and the church age started, we were only 69 weeks into Daniel's 70 weeks. That's where we get this, the 70th week of Daniel's because those are weeks of years. They're seven-year periods. We still have to, at the end of the church age, will be the rapture of the church and the, the, the church is in heaven. We're at the Bema seat of, of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, which basically is also called the marriage supper of the Lamb which is seven years of feast where God rewards us for, for our good works. There will be some people that will show up and all of their works will get burned up, but they're going to be in heaven. They don't care. Um, but there will be some that have huge rewards because they, did, they followed God's call for their life. But while we're doing that, we go back to that age of the law, the Jewish age of the last seven years, and that's when... The tribulation period comes and God will judge the sin of the world because just like with the Canaanites, he dealt with them and dealt with them and dealt with them. 400 and some odd years he dealt with the Canaanites and left his children in captivity. And at the end he said, okay, your time's up. Well, he's been dealing with the, the earth for 2,000 years using the church to deal with them. And if they haven't repented by now, they're probably not going to. So when he comes, when the tribulation period comes, when he pulls us out of here in the rapture, he's going to take the wrath and pour it out on the world. And that wrath is going, it's, it, it, and this is, this is one of the sticking points because I've had people ask me, well, if Jesus paid the price for all of our sins and God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, how does he have any wrath left to pour out during the tribulation age? Well, Jesus paid the price and took the wrath of God for mankind's sins, not for the devil's sin. The wrath that God will pour out during the tribulation period is his wrath on Satan and the angels that fell with Satan. Men don't have to be under that wrath. Even during the tribulation period, it's going to be much as it was in Egypt during the period when Moses came and said, let my people go. There were, there was, there were judgments in Egypt and Goshen, where the, where the Jews lived, had light. They had, no, no, they, they had water instead of blood. They, the flies didn't come. The frogs didn't come. The, the wrath was on the Egyptians and God's blessing was on the Jews during that time. Well, I believe during the tribulation period, there, there are going to be a lot of people get born again. I've said for years, I think the greatest revival in the history of mankind is going to be start 30 seconds after the rapture. <laughs> people that have heard the message and realize, oh my Lord, I missed it. Churches will fill up. And unfortunately, they'll be pastored by some of the pastors that were pastoring before the rapture. They just weren't saved. Um, 
And those churches are going to be filled because people are going to realize, man, we missed it. Well, if they get born again, a lot of them will be martyred during the tribulation period. But some of them will, if they can, can avoid the, the forces of the Antichrist, and some will, because we will, natural men that come out of the tribulation period will repopulate the earth during the millennial kingdom. We will be in resurrection bodies, so we're, we're not going to be having kids and we're not going to be married during, after that. But natural men who come out of the tribulation period that are believers will repopulate and they will get resurrection bodies at the end of the millennial reign. But we will have the, the, the age of law will have that extra seven weeks. And during those seven years, the tribulation period, that final dispensation will be taken care of. Jesus will return bodily at the end of that one. And then we'll come into the seventh millennium or the seventh dispensation, excuse me, which is the millennial reign of Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. The mystery is this church age. And it's only a mystery because Old Testament saints didn't have a revelation of it. And what they really didn't have a revelation of was that in the Old Covenant, mankind came to God by faith. But God could only, in particular in the, um, the age of law, but in all of this, God would come and speak to men and he could bless them to a degree. But he could only come in and anoint them certain men. They were very few. Some of the patriarchs were anointed. During the law, God would anoint the, the priests, the prophet, and the king. He couldn't anoint them the way he anointed us, where the Spirit came and came on the inside of them and dwelled in them. They could just anoint them to do their job and to work, do acts of service for God. During the church age, we have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. Part of what Pastor Chuck preached, you know, the last couple of weeks about the fire of God. That fire of God if you go back and trace what is the fire of God, it's the glory of God. When we get our resurrection bodies, we will get a body that's incorruptible, that doesn't have that, that nature of the, or that curse of the fall on it. Suddenly, we can, we, God can pour out his full glory on us, and it just makes us glow like embers, but it doesn't consume us. Now, that's great. But it's the, 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 the biggest promise here is that in verse 6 of Ephesians 3, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. The good news was this state of being, this ability to get born again, to be, get recreated, to be totally made holy, and righteous on the inside of you is available to anyone that will come. It, it's why Paul says in several places, he says, he'll say it here later on in, in Ephesians, now in the body of Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, 
There's neither male nor female. There's neither barbarian or Scythian. Any division you can come up with, and as a modern man, I can tell you, it, it, there's no they black nor white nor red nor yellow. <clears throat> it's amazing with the studies of genetics, they have found that even the difference genetically between a man and a woman, which there's a whole lot more genetic difference between a man and a woman than any two men or any two women. We are still, the, the individual code in our DNA is 99.99999% exactly the same. It's only a tiny thousandth of a percent of our DNA that's different that makes all the differences in the human structure, the body structure of every human on earth. And yet people look and say, well, I don't accept you because you're black. I don't accept you because you're white. Do you not understand? And, and the worst part is you even see some of this. I, I don't believe, but I don't believe a true Christian who walks in a revelation of the, of the New Testament can look at anyone that says, I'm a Christian, and not see a brother. I'll be honest with you. I went to the hospital this morning to see Randy. I'm standing there in the garage waiting for the elevator. And I rode the elevator with this, this couple and rode down to the garage. We walked through, you know, Methodist hospitals where we were. And I swear, that complex is on like a thousand acre track. It, it seemed like it's 10 miles from one end of that hospital to the other end. And I know that's, that's an exaggeration, but it's <laughs> not by much. But it was a long way. Well, we, we were both going, they were going to the seventh floor, I was going to the fifth floor, but we got on the same elevator. We went down in the garage, walked through the hospital, got back in the, the next elevator. And I'm telling you, I almost asked them and I thought, no, that's just a little, that's going to seem a little weird. And we're just riding in an elevator. I've only got five floors, so 30 seconds to get it out. But I almost stopped and asked them, are you all Christians? Because just the briefest of conversations that we had riding in that elevator, there was just a kinship. I just felt extremely comfortable with this couple. And I just wanted, and part of it is, I wanted to confirm to myself, because I've seen that. I've been in airports before or other public places where you're just sitting there minding your own business and you run into someone and, and you start talking to them and you just feel really comfortable with them and then come to find out when you have a little bit of a conversation, oh, they're Christians. I'm a Christian. It's that joining there. You can just, even in casual conversation a lot of times, you can tell when someone's a Christian. You just have a commonality between you. That's the mystery that, that Paul's talking about here. And he said, verse 7, going back to Ephesians 3, he said, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. I really believe that part of the reason God called Paul, because remember, Paul never saw Jesus resurrected in his physical body other than he had visions of Christ and Christ spoke to him. 
and he saw the resurrected Christ in that sense. But during Jesus' earthly ministry, between the resurrection and the day of Pentecost, he never met with Jesus. I believe it took someone that did not know the physical man, Jesus, to, for God to make this revelation because it was a revelation. Let me read this verse and we'll, we'll close with this. This is out of Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. He said, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Part of, a big part of that gospel is that when you come into Christ, you become one with Christ and you become one with every other Christian. You became one new man. And he said, verse 12, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice he does not say it came through a revelation Jesus Christ gave me. It says it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul got a revelation so deep of who Jesus is, that every time he looked at another believer, he looked at them and he didn't see people, he saw Jesus. If we could get that, wow. It would change churches. It would change our lives. You know, uh, uh, if I could get that revelation about my wife, I would never be able to get annoyed at my wife. If I'd get that revelation about people in the church, I'd never be able to get annoyed at people in the church. Now, can I walk in that 24 hours a day? Theoretically, yes. Practically, no, because I don't live a perfect life. That's why I still, you know, I've said before, if 1 John 1, 9 could be worn out, I would have worn it out already. I got a revelation a long time ago that when I sin, I don't need to wallow in my sin and feel bad and beat myself up. I need to run to 1 John 1, 9 and get it under the blood and do my best to not repeat that sin, which is difficult because I seem to run the same hobby horse because of my physical, not my physical weaknesses, but the weaknesses in my character always show up and until I let Christ strengthen those areas, I keep running that race and having to run back to 1 John 1, 9. But I run back to 1 John 1, 9 to get cleansed of the, of the unrighteousness and hopefully the penalty for those sins. But I also do it so that I can start serving. And when I serve my best is when I look at people and I don't see the people. I just see Christ in them. If I could get if I could walk in that revelation, it would it would change my life dramatically if I could learn to walk in that. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.